I was a uh, music business major in college, and the uh, summer before my junior year, I uh, received an uh, invitation from a friend of mine who had just recently graduated with the uh, same degree. Uh, He called me up and and asked me if I would be interested uh, in working with him and helping him out for a week, uh, helping him out for a, a week or two. Um, I was taking summer school at the time, and I was uh, between a summer session, so I said, sure, uh, what are we going to be doing? Well, I'm the merchandise manager for this big Christian music label, uh, and we'll be touring Texas with DC Talk as they perform uh, at all the Six Flags throughout Texas. So, having nothing to do, I was like, um, sure, why not? Now, um, now, I remember, uh, this was the mid-90s. I'm sort of dating myself a little bit. Uh, Christian music was still sort of good and uh, edgy um, uh, at that point. And, uh, and DC Talk was actually touring on their new album at the time. Does anybody remember? Jesus Freak. <laughs> I would ask you to just try and sing it, but uh, we don't have time for that this morning. So, of course, I said yes. And a few days later, uh, they picked me up in this Uncle Rico-looking RV thing uh, that stored all of the uh, merchandise. Uh, and it was also where we lived while we were uh, on the road. And so we didn't set out to follow this band uh, around Texas. Uh, we would pull into these Six Flags parks uh, around mid-morning, uh, help the park employees unload and set up. And, they were, and then we were free to avail ourselves the park for the rest of the day. And then we would come back, uh, we would come back, enjoy the concert, help the park employees pack up our RV, and then we were off to our next, our next uh, locale. Uh, I only did this for about a week and a half, but I still have some very fond memories uh, of that week and a half. Uh, getting to hang out with artists uh, like the guys from DC Talk, uh, Audio Adrenaline, uh, Michael W. Smith, P of R., If you don't know who these are, they were all big-name artists, big-name artists uh, at the time. Um, You know, some other things I enjoyed, getting to enjoy catered lunches backstage with the entire production crew, obviously tons of free merchandise, not showering for over a week, Um, uh, all all good times. Uh, But but, but I think my favorite memory of that... uh, my favorite memory of that entire time was the Six Flags VIP pass that we were given upon entering the, the, the park. These passes allowed us to go wherever we wanted in the park. It didn't matter how long the lines are, we would flash that badge and immediately be ushered to the front of the line. We could get free food from any vendor uh, within the park. Uh, I remember this part of the job so fondly, probably because I enjoyed it a little bit too much. Um, I I actually enjoyed making my way to the front of the line. It was like the Red Seas parting. When we flashed that badge, people would move over and sort of be cursing at us uh, under their breath as we walked by them all the way to the uh, front of the line. You know, and then, of course, I would look over my shoulder and look at them and all these disgruntled patrons who've been waiting in line for uh, hours, wondering how, wondering how this mangy kid got to go, uh, got to go uh, in front of them. Um, and so w- when, it, when it comes to privilege, we love to be uh, included. And we hate to be uh, excluded. You know, the words exclusive and uh, inclusive are hot-button words today, and all of us probably have stories um, uh, like the one uh, I just shared. If you've ever flown on an airplane, I guarantee you you have this story. (laughs) I'm uh, sitting in the back of the plane looking through that transparent curtain at the uh, good life. 
in the case of my experience at Six Flags, you know, there were terms given to me for being included. Six Flags decides its terms for letting people do what I did there. I didn't set those terms. And so our uh, Explore God series that we are in the middle of today brings us to a question that deals with this exclusive and inclusive language perhaps some of us have been uh, accosted with when it comes to Christianity. And the question is simply this, is Christianity too narrow for our culture? Is Christianity too uh, exclusive? And we've sort of joked uh, around the office that most of these questions have a very simple answer, very simple answer uh, on the surface that then uh, allows us to answer it quickly and then dive deep to sort of the uh, question uh, beneath the question. Um, however, this question isn't quite as simple, isn't quite as simple uh, on the surface. Um, so, let's, so let's just get right into it. Is Christianity too narrow for our culture? Yes. Christianity is narrow. Christianity is exclusive. But Christianity is narrow in the same way that every other religion, every other worldview, every other ideology is narrow. Every religion is narrow. They all make exclusive claims on how to get to God or that there is no God. Those are all exclusive truth claims, and Christianity is no different. And, and there are a lot of reasons why, why people think Christianity is narrow. Um, technology has, has uh, made our world smaller. People are responding uh, with a desire to be more uh, inclusive and uh, accepting. When you know nice people from different uh, religions, whenever they're your neighbor, they have different worldviews and walks of life, it seems open-minded to uh, believe that they are all equally right uh, in their views. And many people think we should accept people the way they are, celebrate diversity, and never try to uh, impose our uh, beliefs on someone else. Christianity or any other uh, religion that claims to know the way to God is therefore uh, immediately dismissed as narrow-minded. And as Christians, I, I think we can appreciate the impulse uh, behind these views, you know, we should celebrate the fact that we do live in a very culturally and a religiously diverse nation. But at what expense? Is it at the expense of abandoning the idea that Jesus is the way to God? The only way to God? And guess what? Saying that is narrow. You know, and I said this question doesn't really have a simple answer, a simple answer on the, on the surface. On one hand, yes, Christianity is narrow and specific and uh, exclusive. A person can come to God only through his son, Jesus. On the other hand, though, going back to this question, is Christianity too narrow? Absolutely not. The offer of salvation uh, within Christianity is uh, inclusive. Just listen to a 1 Timothy 2. God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge, come to the knowledge of the truth. The offer of grace and forgiveness and peace and eternity with God is for everyone. 
It's not, it's not limited to the best and the brightest. You don't have to be in possession of some sort of members-only jacket uh, to find grace and a mercy. Uh, to find grace and mercy and just to simply have a place at Christ's table. So the answer to this question is actually yes and no. But I want to put this question in context a little bit for a little bit more for us today, because as I've been thinking about this question for the past few weeks, uh, I've come to realize that it's a confusing question at best. I won't say it's bad. I will say it's a confusing question. Just even thinking about this question, is Christianity too narrow? You have to, uh, you have to uh, define Christianity. In fact, that word Christianity could be replaced with any religion or worldview, and we could be asking the same question today. Is Judaism too narrow for our culture? Yes. Is Islam too narrow for our culture? Yes. Is atheism too narrow for our culture? Yes. So for us here today, what does it mean to be a Christian? It simply means to be a follower of Christ. Ultimately, Jesus is at the core of our faith, his teaching, his words, his claims. Any uh, evaluation of the Christian faith should start with Jesus. He is at the center, and the character of Christianity should reflect the character of Jesus. But I also don't like this word narrow. It, it, it requires, just like Christianity, it requires the little uh, definition um, first of all, why, why is the implication that narrow is bad, for one? Two, what is it that's being described as narrow here? This question doesn't really tell us. Well, narrow is being used here to uh, describe the way to God. So by giving this question a little bit more definition, we really arrive at the question uh, beneath the question today, and that's this. Is Jesus the only way to God? Is Jesus the only way to God? And the answer to this question is problematic for us today because we live in a culture and a society that uh, espouses a religious pluralism and uh, espouses tolerance that believes that there are many ways to God. Just listen to this. According to a 2011 Barna poll, 43% of Americans think it doesn't matter what religious faith you follow because they all teach the same lessons. And 50% believe that all people are eventually saved or accepted by God no matter what they do. And according to an even earlier Barna survey, most Americans do not believe in uh, absolute truth. By a three-to-one margin, adult Americans said, truth is always relative to the person or the situation. Parents, among teenagers, 83% said moral truth depends on the circumstances, and only 6% believe that moral truth is uh, absolute. All religions are the same. They all teach the same thing. We all end up in the same place in the end. Believe what you want to believe. Truth is relative. This is apparently a philosophy that half of Americans are believing in. Odds are many of us in this room ascribe to this belief. And even if you don't, 
Um, uh, as, as Christians, we have been charged to be a faithful witness to Christ in the cultures that we find ourselves in. And this is the culture we find ourselves in. We are bombarded by this worldview that says, stop claiming your religion is the only way. Be a little bit more open-minded. Be more tolerant. Parents, this is the culture and philosophy that our kids are going to grow up in, a culture where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So herein lies the the tension uh, of this question, because it's Jesus himself who declares himself narrow, who says that the way to God is exclusively through him. There is no other way. And we're sold this idea of pluralism, you know, from, from our cartoons to our TV personalities to our pop stars, that this uh, religious pluralism is a, a good thing. This idea that all spiritual roads lead to God, to heaven, to spiritual satisfaction, to harmony, to peace. And we're fed this confusing line that says, while every religion is the same, each is wrong uh, on its own. But somehow, whenever they're all thrown into a big blender, it produces this truth smoothie. Somehow. And here's the rub. All religions are not the same. All religions are not the same. Let me just say that one more time. All religions are not the same. They all have glaring differences uh, and are actually contradictory. Christianity is not the only religion or philosophy to make truth claims. Every religion, every worldview seeks to make a truth claim about life and the world we live in. Let's just consider just one thing. Let's just consider the nature of God. Christianity believes in one God in three eternal persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Judaism believes in one God, but not in three persons. Islam believes in one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Hinduism believes in millions of gods. Uh, In fact, they haven't even discovered all uh, those gods are. Um, um, uh, Odds are you are a Hindu god this morning and and you don't even know it yet. Um, And and the naturalist and the atheist doesn't believe in a god. And there's more I could list and, and they all say something different when it comes to the nature of God, the human condition, and the way of salvation. So how can they all be true at the same time? And this type of pluralistic belief we are fed really esteems our culture's cardinal virtue, which is tolerance. It says that it doesn't matter what you believe because it's intolerant to say your way is the only way. This tolerance actually demands that we abandon what we believe in order to be perceived as to be perceived as an inclusive at best, non-bigoted at worst. Individually, we're all wrong, but together we're somehow all right. Does that make sense? And uh, let's just be honest, we don't live as if this type of pluralism is a good idea. How many of you want driving directions from a directional pluralist? I just need to get to Brander Mill. Hey, we'll just pick any road and drive on it. They all end up in Brander Mill somehow. <laughs> How many of you want the math pluralist as a tutor for your kid? 
hey, two plus two is whatever you want it to be. Some say four, some say five. And actually, it's pretty narrow-minded and intolerant of you to demand that only one answer to the problem be right. Right? No, and, and I get it. It sounds, it sounds completely absurd whenever I state it that way, but, but spiritually, this is what's told to us. And uh, considering Christianity this morning, it certainly isn't true of a Christianity. In fact, Jesus said just the opposite in a Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Jesus is the narrow gate. The way to God is exclusively, exclusively through him, and I get it. That's sometimes really hard to wrap our minds around. It's difficult to understand and to come to terms with because he makes room for no other philosophy. He makes room for no other religion or worldview or ideology as a way to truly know God. No, he says in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you've been around church for any period of time, you've probably heard this before. You may even believe it. But do our lives reflect this? Does your life uh, reflect this uh, belief? Yes, we believe he died for sin and he's really important to know God. But sometimes we live as, as if he's just the best route, not the only way to God. For most of us, Jesus is just the preferred way to God. But at the end of the day, there are other ways. There has to be. If you're really good, you can know him. If you serve a lot, you can know him. If you grew up in church, you certainly know him. Even if you don't believe Jesus is the only way. And it becomes really easy for us to adopt the mindset that he is just our way. We believe that he's the best route to God, but probably not the only route. All of a sudden, the way you know God isn't through Jesus, but it's by how well you behave. The way you know God is not faith in Christ, but by having a certain type of family, or attending a certain type of church, or by sending your kids to a particular school. Or on the negative side of that, or by not committing a certain type of sin. And one symptom that shows that we have succumbed to this type of belief is that suddenly we find that we're not really talking about Jesus all that much. Just think back over this, this past week in your life to all the different conversations you had. When was the last time you had an extended conversation about Jesus with anyone? Whether that's work, family, friends, neighbors, how often do you really talk about Jesus? We like to talk about our feelings. We like to talk about everything wrong in the church. We like to talk about our jobs. But rarely do we talk about Jesus. 
Why is that? It's really because He has become secondary to us. He's become secondary in our hearts, in our minds, and especially in our conversations. And what has happened is that eventually in our lives and through our culture, this idea has crept in that maybe we don't really have to know Jesus to know God. If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, turn with me over to the Gospel of Mark. We're actually going to be here for the rest of the morning. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, starting in verse 32. Yes, I realize we just finished Mark a few weeks ago, and now we're back already. Chapter 14, starting in verse 32, this is a famous story because it gives us a very intimate portrait of who Jesus is, of him praying in the garden before he goes to the cross. And and it reminds us that while, yes, Jesus is 100% God, he's also 100% man. And while he did not sin, he did struggle. He did have temptation. And what we see in these verses is Jesus struggling to uh, embrace the cross, struggling to embrace the will of God for his life, struggling with the thought that he would soon pay for our sins, sins that he didn't commit, and pay a debt to God that he does not owe. And it's through this story that one of the most basic truths of Christianity really comes to life, that Jesus is the only way to God. There is no other route to knowing God. There's no other route to having your sins forgiven than Jesus being the payment for them. He is the only way. So let's start here. Um, Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. This is Jesus' last moment with his disciples before his suffering was about to begin. So he takes them to a familiar place, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he leaves most of his disciples at the entrance to the garden, but then he takes his three closest friends, James, Peter, and John, with him, and Jesus asks them to sit and watch while he, in turn, goes and, and prays. Why is he praying here? Because he is... As we're going to read here, he is overwhelmed with sorrow. He's overwhelmed with grief and terror at the thought of what was about to happen to him. He knows the cross was coming for him. But, but why is he so sad and terrified? Was it because he was scared of dying? Not wanting nails to go through his wrist? No. J- Jesus was facing something more than death here something more significant. He was about to experience something that none of his followers then and none of his followers ever since would ever uh, experience. He's sorrowful because he knows that on that cross, he is going to experience the wrath of God. He's not filled with sorrow because he was scared of physical pain or shame or his friends uh, abandoning him. Even though all those things would happen, he's filled with sorrow because he knows the spiritual agony, 
the torment and hopelessness and terror of the wrath of God is coming to him. Remember, the Father and Jesus have only known one another in perfect love and joy and infinite happiness of forever. Jesus has always been his Father's delight, and he knows on the cross that he won't be his Father's delight. His Father was about to pour out his wrath on him for our sins. And on that cross, Jesus would become sin on our behalf, and God would treat him as such. That's why he says here in verse 34, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And then... And then we have Jesus asking his father the same question that we are asking today. Is there any other way? Any other way for your people to be saved from your wrath for their sin than me dying? Is there any other way? Verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Essentially, he is saying, God, if there is anything else I could do, yes, let's do that. Any other act, any other way. And notice in this text, he asks it, three different times. It's not just once. He would pray and then go check on his disciples who are, of course, who are, of course, asleep. Uh, skip down to verse 39. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. He kept praying and asking for the same thing. Surely, God, in all of your resources, you could find another way for people to be saved other than me dying on the cross for their sins. And then we get to verses 41. He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. For the third time, Jesus finds his disciples asleep, and he knows what his Father's answer is. You are the only way. You have to experience this in order for them to be saved. If my wrath is going to be absorbed, it has to be through you. There is no other way. And even though this this truth may be basic to us today, I, I will readily confess to you, it's hard to think about. I feel the weight. I feel the weight of that truth. I feel the weight of the myriad of implications that come from this truth. And one of those, and one of those is this. Maybe our sin isn't as grievous as it is because it hurts us and other people, although that's part of it. No. Our sin is grievous because it puts us at odds with God. 
Our sin is primarily against God, and because God is so holy and perfect and pure and good, just a moment of sin puts us under God's terrible, uh, eternal wrath. No one is righteous. This is why Jesus is the only way. And, and, and the haunting truth behind all of this is that one day God will pour out his wrath. Sin will be punished. And he will either pour it on Jesus or he's going to pour it on us. But he will execute judgment. His wrath, his glory, his love, all those things demand it. That's why he says to us today, there is no other way. Faith is the only way. Faith in Christ is the only way to escape that judgment and be loved by God as a son and a daughter forever. And and what this means is that no matter how moral a person is, how good they are, how nice, how well-intentioned, how faithful, how talented, no matter the background or culture or story of any given purpose, of any given person, the only way to God is faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And this is what Jesus hears from the Father. And, and I get it. That's difficult for us to hear. It's difficult for us to hear that and see God as a loving. I thought God was love. Everyone knows God is love. If he were loving, surely he would take into account all the different scenarios in the world, all the different people, all the different backgrounds and cultures, and he would find some other way. You see, we think that if he was loving, he would. But I need you to understand today that it's precisely because he is loving that Jesus is the only way to God. At the heart of God has been and always will be love. The heart of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit is holiness and love. God has always had love for himself and love for his people. Those are the two dominant themes that we see in Scripture. His love for his glory and his love for a humanity. But God first and foremost loves himself. He first and foremost loves his glory. Secondly, he loves his people. Now, if this is the first time you've ever heard that God loves his glory most, let me just uh, explain that to you real quickly. God loves himself most because he is the one who is most lovable. God values himself most because he is most valuable. There is nothing greater than God, nothing better than, than God, nothing more satisfying than God. And so for him to act otherwise would actually make him a liar. It would make him sinful, leaving us without hope. If he is the most satisfying being in the universe, then to point us in any other direction would not be helpful for us. And this doesn't negate his love for us or even lessen his love for us. It just puts us in our proper place. We are not the center of the universe. 
Everything is not about us. It's ultimately shown to be about him and his glory. So God loves his glory and he loves his people. But, 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 but here's what happened. Our, our sin puts these two loves uh, at odds with one another because our sin is basically saying, God, you're not most lovable. You're not most valuable. You're not most satisfying. Something you've created is better than you. What we're saying is that something you've given me is better than you. We, we belittle his glory. We devalue his glory. No matter if those, no matter if we're valuing family over God, money, comfort, you, you name it, what we're saying is there is more joy apart from God than there is with him. And we're saying that his glory is not great. So God loves his glory. He values his glory. So when we offend and belittle it, guess what? Wrath is produced. Wrath is actually generated from love. God's wrath towards sin is just love in action. God's wrath is produced to protect what he loves. Now, now that may sound foreign whenever you think about God, but we all, we all totally get this uh, in our own lives. If you love someone, you will find yourself producing wrath if someone else belittles or devalues or degrades that person. If someone belittled my wife or one of my boys in front of me and tells me just how unlovable they are, guess what? A righteous wrath is going to be produced uh, in me. And I will jump to defend and protect them. Why? Because I love them. My wrath is love in action. This is why we can talk bad uh, about our family, but no one else can. You know, that's my crazy relative, not yours. You know, we love them. So, so wrath is produced out of love. It's not the opposite of love. That's an apathy. So if this is true for us, then it is infinitely more true for God. He loves his glory more than anything, and he should, because nothing is more lovable and value, valuable than his glory. So now his loves are at odds. The same people he wants to love, he also wants to punish. If you have kids, you've probably had the same feeling before. I love you, and I'm going to kill you at the same time. <laughs> it is possible, I promise. <laughs> so how does God solve this, this, this problem? Because it seems as if he can only do one thing or the other, either love his glory or love us. Either love his glory and condemn us to hell because of our sin, or love us and let us go scot-free and not love his glory as we trample all over it with, with our sin. And this is a problem. And perhaps the greatest conundrum within all of Christianity, how is God going to be loving and just? And, and, and here's the good news for us this morning. This isn't our problem. This isn't your problem. You don't have to figure this out. God has already found a solution for us. He's already solved the problem. He has sent Jesus. Jesus is the solution to this problem. Jesus enables God to love his glory most as he loves us, his saved people, at the same time. 
And through Jesus, God is able to love his glory by punishing sin. He's able to uplift the value of his name by punishing every sin against him, but he does so by pouring out his wrath on Jesus instead of us. And the cross cross just shows us how grievous our sin is because someone still had to die. Jesus had to die. And God is now able to love us because Jesus takes our place. And so now we get to know God in love and friendship and fellowship. And Jesus gets all the punishment. Jesus is the way that God gets to love himself and his people at the exact same time. He's not the preferred way. He's not an option. He's the only way. I mean, even going back to our our Mark 14 passages, notice how Jesus responds to this at the end of our passages. Once again, there in Mark 14, 41. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He knows at this point that there is no other way. He knows the wrath of God is coming for him for all of his people's sins but he's not afraid anymore. He says, okay, guys, get up, let's go. My betrayer's coming, let's go face this thing head on. And and the best thing about Jesus at this point, he's not being forced to go to the cross. He wants to go. He wanted to go. He loved his father enough that he wanted the world to see that sin is as bad as he says it is. And he was willing to die for it. And he loved us enough to die so that we could be free to know this God. This is what being a Christian is all about. This is why Jesus is the centerpiece of everything. Not only did he make the way to God, he wanted to make the way to God. He faced what was most terrifying, the wrath of God for us. So as we close this morning, if you are in Christ today, you need to be reminded that there's no more punishment for sins left. There's no more anger for your sin. There's no more wrath for your sin. Jesus was punished, so we didn't have to be. Jesus was abandoned on the cross as the wrath of God poured out on him so that we will never be abandoned. We will always be loved by God, even if we don't feel loved this morning. The cross promises that. It tells us that there's no wrath left. Even if God wanted to be angry, he couldn't because he's already spent all of his wrath on Jesus. And if you're a believer this morning, this is the great news that we rest in. And this is why we remind ourselves of this over and over again, because we forget it far too easily. And we need to be reminded of this. Richmond needs to be reminded of this. They don't need a gospel that says you can only know God by being a certain way, or the way you know God is how you you behave. There's only one way to God, and that's Jesus. He's the only way that guarantees that we can know God as our Father. 
So all we have to do today and for the rest of our lives is just simply confess that Jesus is right, he's steady, he's sure, and he's our only hope. Is Christianity narrow? Yes, because it's only through Christ. But the call to follow him goes out to every one of us today. The call to respond to Jesus in repentance and faith is inclusive. And we now get to respond together by taking communion, which is simply remembering that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is our Savior, and he has become a human being to identify with us. He lived a life without sin. He died for our sin. His blood was shed for our sin, and his body was broken in our place. And he's now risen and alive and well today, and we now get to celebrate him together responding as a people who have much to celebrate, people who have been rescued from wrath, people filled with joy and gratitude regardless of our circumstances. But before we do that today, I just want to take a little time just to reflect this morning as we search our hearts and we ask ourselves, do I have any Savior but Jesus? And if so, can it save? Can it truly save? Can it it save me from myself? Can it save me from sin? Can it save me from death? Can it save me from God? And if you can't with full assurance say that this morning, if you don't know this Jesus, just take a moment now call out to him, cry out to him for salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Don't worry about taking this bread and juice this morning. Take Jesus. Grab a friend, grab a neighbor around you. Use those prayers on the back of your bullets and if you simply don't know what to say. Jesus' call to us this morning goes out to all of us. Come, follow me. Let's pray. Father, how often a simple and a basic truth in your word becomes so ordinary to us that we so easily get lulled into thinking that Jesus isn't the only way, just a preferred way that Jesus is just optional in our lives. But Jesus, you are of such quality and character and love and mercy. We don't ever want to move past you. May we never move past you as the centerpiece and leader of our lives. Father, this morning, remind us of who you are. Remind us that no amount of religiosity or spirituality can get us to God. That no sin or struggle can make us unsavable. But that, Jesus, you are the only way to God. Remind us that there's no other way for our friends to know you. No other way for our family to know you. Our neighbors to know you. Our co-workers to know you. No matter how much we love them, only Jesus can get them to you. Father, move among us today. 
Give us a song to sing this morning because you wanted to save us. You found a way, and God, you deserve glory forever because of it. And we ask and we hope these things in Christ's name. Amen.